This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. But first, it is free money, $72 million dollars. And the province still is offering that to Surrey, and Surrey's saying, ah, hard pass. That's not good enough for Surrey. Other cities are now looking at that pot of cash and saying, if you've got money for that, what about us? Why not us? Meanwhile, the police transition in Surrey remains in question. Oh, by the way, just as a reminder, here's what Mike Farnworth had to say about playing favorites in this whole thing. The province is not playing favorites. The province is dealing with a situation in Surrey which impacts not just Surrey but all uh, communities across the province, particularly those that are policed by the RCMP. And that is the reason why the province is willing to pick up the tab for any cost for transitioning to a Surrey police service. Mayor Brenda Locke says she was elected to keep the RCMP. That was made well aware during the last civic election. And here's what she had to say about the money situation. The number of uh, mayors and other councillors that are now calling me and saying, uh, we want the Me Too. Like, if they're throwing around money to uh, local government, uh, we would like some over here. Well, there you go. Well, to bring in some expertise on this area, uh, Francis Beulah, Urban Issues and political writer for the Globe and Mail, joins us. Francis, uh, thanks for being with us on a Monday morning. Happy Monday to you. Yeah, you too, Bruce. So where do we go from here with all these other, first of all, municipalities, cities around the province saying $72 million, you had that? Um, is there any hope that Mike Farnworth might say, you know what, okay, if Surrey passes on that, yeah, we'll dole out some money for some of your issues. Yeah, well, for, um, just to uh, get the record straight, it's actually not $72 million. Um, that's what they would have to pay in severance costs for the RCMP. And um, the provinces said, no, you can't have that. But if you stick with the Surrey police transition, we'll give you as much as $30 million for five years. So 150 and maybe more if there's negotiation. So really... Surrey at this point is facing having to turn down a quarter of a billion dollars to stick with the RCMP. They wouldn't get the 150 and then they'd have to pay severance costs for the Surrey Police Service, which they budgeted 85 million for um, the other number is 72. So that is a huge amount of money to say to your citizens, we think policing is so much better with the RCMP that uh, we're willing to give up this quarter billion dollars. So I think there's going to be some pretty serious talks at Surrey Council behind the scenes over the next couple of weeks. Well, behind the scenes, and I would imagine some of those talks might be very upfront, it being Surrey, and there might be some outcry over this. Quarter of a million dollars, if we take a look at that number, that's a lot of money to double down on your position of staying with the RCMP. But one of the things that is pointed out is possibly it's going to be cheaper in the long run. That's a lot of long run in order to uh, keep it cheaper, isn't it? You'd really have to run that, you know, just like some of us are running our old age pension. When should we take it kind of thing? But yeah, 
someone would really have to uh, run the numbers long term and show that somehow you would save that quarter billion by sticking with the RCMP. And honestly, I I just can't see the province going along with it, even though they say it's Surrey's decision. But clearly, they really want Surrey to keep going with the transition to a municipal force, especially when there's talk about like switching to a, a provincial police force rather than RCMP for all of BC. They can't have the biggest city um, still committed to the RCMP if they're thinking of doing that. You mentioned this, and it has come up before. Eventually, when cities grow, there is a point where they have to take a look. Well, I don't know if have to, but they usually do take a look at turning over to a city police force. It's happened right across the country. What is the deal with Surrey that makes it so different, do you think, in holding on to the RCMP? Well, it's it's a really interesting case out there. So it is the biggest city that the RCMP police in all of Canada. Uh, I think if they go, then Burnaby's going to be the next one up. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing about the whole RCMP thing is that Doug McCallum, the previous mayor, he always wanted to get rid of the RCMP and nobody could quite understand why. He never made a totally convincing case for it. And so when he was elected mayor in 2018 and said, okay, now I'm carrying through with this, he sort of had people on his side at the beginning, but because he could never totally explain all the benefits and the rationale, he just kept saying, I was elected and I'm doing it, people kind of started to turn against it. And so this is all an object lesson in if you're going to do a transition, you really have to make sure the public is on board. Uh, you know, Richmond w- was looking at it 10 years ago. They got mad because Surrey pulled um, uh some kind of community liaison officers or something like that. They discontinued the program and and Richmond thought it was really valuable. So they looked at leaving, but they polled the public really extensively to make sure this is what the residents wanted. And ultimately they determined that the residents weren't that upset. In fact, they thought the RCMP was doing a good job. So Surrey is a, is a, Oh, I'm sure it's going to be studied in textbooks because they kind of did all these wrong things to turn the public against it. And then and then this huge transition, like something that, you know, no Canadian city of that size has gone through, uh, then started to like get off track. And uh, what a mess. Well, off track and nowhere near the tracks. And uh, boy, that train is really expensive at this point. When you take a look at what's happening now with uh, Surrey saying, well, at least the mayor, Brenda Locke, saying no to this and uh, turning the back on a quarter of a million dollars, you have to wonder what the the next move is going to be. Is the province really that entrenched, do you think, in coming into a Surrey issue and saying this is the way it should be? Strong recommendation. I mean, that's the term used by uh, Mike Farnworth. But is the strong recommendation really something that the province wants to go ahead with? Well, they did it. And they say that they don't have the legislative authority to do anything more. Like they can't order Surrey to have one police force or another. That just that's beyond their powers. Although I think they can change that because ultimately cities are controlled by provincial legislation. But, you know, their problem isn't just with Surrey. Um, Like the reason you 
he wanted me on this morning as I wrote a story about other municipalities in the region who are completely baffled by what, what's going on. You know, they are struggling with their policing costs because the RCMP got a new union contract. And so places like Burnaby had to cover $11 million in back pay uh, and so on. And they got no help uh, with any of that uh, in the deal that the province and the federal government worked out. And um and on top, so they see Surrey getting potentially 150 million. They get nothing. On top of it, if Surrey pulls out of the RCMP as the province wants it to, that will also mean more costs for other municipalities because they'll have to pick up, you know, a bigger share of the administration costs with Surrey out. With Surrey out, if uh, Surrey was to go ahead with the Surrey Police Service. Is that just the start of the dominoes falling, uh, not only in BC, but right across the country? I mean, I think the police, the RCMP police union, the National Police Federation, they see it that way. They've been working really hard lobbying in BC and Alberta and Ottawa and, you know, I believe the Maritimes to, uh, you know, convince people not to drop the RCMP in favor of a municipal or regional force. So, you know, what the official RCMP is also saying, I'm not sure, but certainly in Surrey, the commissioner, the, the, the deputy commissioner there has been very vocal about why Surrey should stay with the RCMP. Is He's been pretty political about it. At the end of the day, we're still talking about the number of officers that would be on the street doesn't really matter. And we're seeing more of this. If there's Surrey police service officers or RCMP members, there appears to be a real problem when it comes to recruitment. How is this going to be settled out? Do you think? Yeah, I don't know how they're going to do this. And you know, um, the solicitor general's rationale for having Surrey go forward with the police service was uh, saying, you know, it will disrupt all the other communities in BC that are policed by the RCMP if if Surrey goes back to the RCMP and then they have to like rehire the 300 officers that they lost, you know, or that went, uh, you know, that were picked up by the by the Surrey police. And so, um, so that was the big concern. But what I heard from mayors I talked to is, well, we're losing either way because the Surrey Police Service was also hiring people from our RCMP detachments. We're losing officers no matter what. Some of them have had, you know, vacancies for literally, you know, two decades that they haven't been able to fill. Uh, and it, there's a kind of a continent-wide policing shortage Um and it's hard to say how uh, that's going to be resolved. I know in Ontario, Doug Ford is talking about, you know, letting police officers uh, in, uh, even if they don't have degrees, which was previously a requirement. And but people are looking at how can we resolve this uh, labor shortage? Yeah. Francis, at the end of the day, five years from now, is it going to be a Surrey Police Service or an RCMP? That's the force of jurisdiction in Surrey. What's your prediction? I mean... I mean, I have to think it's going to be the Surrey Police Service because ultimately a quarter billion dollars that you're telling your taxpayers to swallow for what? You know, for what kind of improvement uh, do you think? And the vote before to go back to the RCMP was 5-4. It just takes one person to change, uh, you know, to switch and um, reverse that decision. But I think there has to be some hard, tough talking going on. 
uh, with Surrey. I know they're they're meeting with the Solicitor General and staff in a couple of weeks, and you have to think that you know at some point they're going to go. This is this the cost is too high to stick with the RCMP. Absolutely. Uh, interesting to see uh, another couple weeks and then a couple more weeks after that, it seems like we're still uh, waiting for some sort of resolution to this. And thanks for your input this morning. All the best to you, Francis. Yeah. And Mike is off today. Bruce Claggett in for him. The announcement this morning, the federal liberals are renewing their multi-million dollar program to fight gang violence and gun crime. Yep, they're earmarking $390 million over five years for the provinces and territories. The money? Well, it should go toward a variety of initiatives, including support for police and prevention programs. That's the announcement, that's the official word, and the money being talked about in Ottawa. Now let's take a look at what's happening in our province. About a couple weeks ago, I think it was announced by IHIT, uh, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, that uh, we should start using the term BC gang problem because there are no boundaries really when it comes to what we're seeing with gangs and with some of the violence. And we continue to see this. There is a bit of an uptick. Same MO, same shootings that occur, often in very public places, often in daylight hours, and often followed up by a burning car somewhere else. It's still going on, and the money's still being spent. How is it going to end? Where do we go from here? Well, to bring in some of that, or some of those questions, let's bring in Kim Bolin, Vancouver Sun's crime reporter. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. You know, you hear announcements like this, and you've been covering gangs, gang violence, shootings for as long as I can remember. And I know you're young. I mean, I hate saying that. You're still young at heart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's got to be frustrating at some point because you take a look at all this money being spent. It's still the same old, same old. And yet we're losing lives. We're use, losing lives of people deciding to go into this lifestyle. What's going on? Yeah, it's a pretty bad situation overall. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of progress made over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. I mean, there have been some successful prosecutions in major gang murder cases, but all you have to do is look at, you know, the long-running Surrey 6 murder case. You know, murders uh, happened of six people back in 2007, including two bystanders that literally got caught up in this gangland conflict. And here we are in 2023, and the case has been reopened by the Supreme Court of Canada. So, you know, even when there is a successful prosecution, in that case, uh, two people were convicted of six counts of first-degree murder, and now the one surviving one, uh, one has died in prison, is going to get his case reopened here in B.C. Supreme Court. So, you know, unfortunately, things like that sort of send a message to these young guys involved that, oh, hey, it'll be okay, you know, it's really hard to get caught in this province um, I don't think a lot of them make conscious decisions to, you know, become a big-time gangster. I think they get involved when they're very young, and they maybe get manipulated into doing some small task for money, uh, particularly kids that are more marginalized and don't have access to, to a lot, and they get impressed by that, right? And then, you know, by the time they kind of realize the path they've, they're on, uh, it's too late, and it's very hard for them to get out. 
so the violence continues. Um, I think what's also interesting, you know, if you compare now to 10 years ago, is uh, there are a lot of young people, like 18 to 22, uh, that are involved uh, through links to others, but maybe don't have that affiliation to one gang, didn't consciously, you know, get a tattoo for one gang or the other, uh, but they're still getting shot dead because they're with people that are maybe targets. Uh, so it's a lot murkier than it was uh, when, you know, uh, we look back at the days when you had like the Red Scorpion gang versus the United Nations gang and police would issue public warnings that were very specific because they knew who was going to be targeted in the tit for tat. Now, you know, how could they do a big public warning poster? There are so many young people involved or around the periphery of this right now. It's a gig economy. They're freelancers. Well, or they're not even directly involved, but they're hanging out with people who are, you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people uh, are very loyal to their friends. So if they've gone up through school together, you know, for example, they're still hanging out with them, even if that other person is involved or making their money this way. And that means that you are also a target, uh, especially when you're riding around in the same vehicle. We saw the uh, Jaden Prasad murdered last week, 20 years old, no criminal record, you know, had friends that were in the uh, Brothers Keepers gang, but no one would argue that he specifically was a member. He was known to police because, you know, if you're hanging out with these guys, you're known to police. And he was shot dead, you know, in a parking lot uh, outside a convenience store in Surrey. Um, and one of the guys he was with uh, was was wounded and uh, is going to be fine. You know, killer got away. So, you know, police have made progress arresting people. We saw, um, you know, several weeks ago the arrests of three lower mainland gangsters in connection with the murder of uh, the mom of someone involved in the drug trade uh, in Naramata. And that was when police announced that they believed this conflict should no longer be called the Lower Mainland Gang Conflict because it was province-wide. You know, in that case, you had, you know, Lower Mainland gangsters connected to the Red Scorpion Gang up allegedly, um, you know, committing acts of violence in Prince George and then in Naramata, where this woman was uh, killed inside her own home. You go where the market is, I, I would imagine. It knows no boundaries. One of the things you pointed out, uh, Kim, in the last uh, few days is the BC Prosecution Service hiring. Well, it's not enough prosecutors, and we're still down judges, aren't we? Yeah, yes, we, we're down a number of judges. Uh, they're having trouble finding prosecutors, it seems. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of factors at play. And then we know, obviously, you know, policing is struggling to get recruits right now. You've, you know, got what's going on in Surrey. Uh, with the RCMP and the SPS, uh, which force is going to uh, be the one going forward. Uh, but either way, you know, not enough people uh, to fill the vacancies are going into policing, whether it's municipal or RCMP, uh, because, you know, it's become a more challenging job. There's a lot of public criticism of police. And so, you know, at every uh, spot along the process, you know, from, um, you know, policing right through to the courts, uh, there are staffing shortages. And, you know, I can't say there's a direct correlation with what's happening on the street, uh, but certainly I know a lot of guys involved in this do not believe they'll ever be held to account for the crimes they're committing. Well, and that's uh, that's a story in words. Word basically spreads quickly, whether you're going to be investigated, uh, found out, followed, or, uh, you know, prosecuted and ultimately end up in prison. 
We're down judges. We're down prosecutors. We're down police. We're down investigators. We're down um, even services uh, on the ground to get uh, people thinking about a different lifestyle. What about these announcements like the federal announcement this morning? Does it address any of these areas? Well, I mean, it's certainly going to go to uh, agencies in BC that are working on these issues. And I think the BC portion of that $390 million is over 54, almost $55 million. Uh, that is um, up by about $25 million over uh, what BC got in the last five years, you know, with this similar grant program. So, yeah, it's more money and it could help uh, potentially. Uh, certainly, you know, if it's going to the Organized Crime Agency of BC, you know, they're right on the ground doing investigations, uh, you know, so that's a good thing. But, you know, we've seen some cases where there's been, you know, a major investigation into organized crime, uh, then it sits with uh, prosecutors for years, and then a decision is made not to lay charges. I remember you. Know, so, yeah. Sorry, Kim. No, no, I was just going to say, so, you know, that's just sort of another issue that's out there, right? Um Uh, There are a lot of problems in the system right now, and I don't see anyone sort of taking a step back to look at maybe more creative solutions about what could be done. I still come back to a few years ago when it was at least thought to be that you would have guns coming up or going across the border for cocaine, for drugs. There is this trade. Is that still happening or is there something different? Because it seems like we still have a lot of guns on the street I still hear gunfire. Yes, I do know what the difference between fireworks and uh, firecrackers and uh, backfires in cars and the sound of gunfire. And for every maybe shooting that we know about, there are a lot of practices taking place. There are a lot of guns just floating around. What's going on here? Has it changed? Well, it has changed. And BC is different than in other provinces. Uh, we do get a lot of guns smuggled across the border. I mean, they can be bought legally there and smuggled uh, into Canada. They don't have to be sort of traded by crime groups, although that still happens for product. Uh, but we also know from police investigations over the last five years that, you know, there have been uh, people that are put up to be straw purchasers, people with clean records who go through the process to become legal uh, permit holders for firearms and go buy them and then divert them to gangs and organized crime. That's been another way. Uh, there's always, also always been a lot of theft of legal firearms uh, from firearm owners, and that's another way crime guns you know, get onto the street, right? And then you have the issue of um, 3D guns you know, that have improved in their quality that can literally be manufactured. Uh, and then ghost guns, you know, where they come in a variety of pieces, mailed, and then they're put together here in Canada. So, you know, even the way of obtaining firearms is a lot more sophisticated than it used to be. There are so many avenues available. Um, and, yeah, there are a lot more guns. And one thing that I've noticed in my 20 years covering uh, gangs specifically is is that, you know, you never used to see firearms in the hands of the lowest level of people involved in the drug trade, like the street level, and now you do, right? And, you know, that's contributed to some of the violence that we've seen in the downtown east side, for example, is just that, you know, people that wouldn't have had access to firearms, uh, you know, 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, suddenly do have access to firearms. So it's sort of all along the chain, if you will, of people involved in the drug 
uh, trade from the street level to the mid-level, you know, which is where most of the violence occurs, to the highest levels. And that chain, uh, that's where I think it's just amazing. Some of the people you talk about at the lowest level must have some sort of chain connection right to the top or at least some organized expertise that is involved in the gun trade because it's not just uh, anyone that can, uh, can obtain guns. Well, I think that they would come in at the mid-level and they would filter down, if you will. But, I mean, once they're out there, you know, they become another source of commerce on the street, right? Trade, bartering uh, for drugs. Uh, so, you know, it's it's right across the board, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a real problem. I, there are a lot of people, you know, doing their best to resolve it. Uh, but uh, I think it's here to stay. And I When I first got onto this beat, I used to think, oh, well, if you just did this, you know, uh, more education schools, you could deter people from going down this path. Uh, But it seems that it's a real viable option for a percentage of the population. And, you know, that is very troubling. And I don't know how you make that go away. Yeah, I guess it's examples of uh, people they know ending up behind bars. That may be one start. Uh, And also people they know ending up dead. Unfortunately, that may be another These are really difficult questions. Kim, I should ask you this before you go. We've been talking a lot lately about uh, the traditional gangs or the traditional organized crime, the Hells Angels and some of the puppet clubs. Where do we stand now? Are they as popular or as strong or are they kind of waning now? Well, the Hells Angels is about to celebrate its 40th anniversary uh, in British Columbia. That will be in July and they'll no doubt have a big party. Uh, They obviously lost three of their clubhouses in a BC Court of uh, Appeal ruling in February. They're appealing that that to the Supreme Court of Canada. So they took a hit, but interestingly, the Hells Angels have more members uh, and people in their program than they've ever had here in BC. So again, you know, people are attracted to these organizations uh, for one reason or another. And, uh, you know, that, that surprises me that they are still so popular and still able to recruit members. Indeed. Kim Bolin, thank you so much, and uh, all the best to you. My pleasure. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Keith will be back again tomorrow, by the way. So WestJet pilots are preparing for their information picket lines today, taking place at airports here in Vancouver and in Calgary and in Toronto. But possibly a strike coming up just in time for those big holiday plans you might have, like for the May long weekend or your summer vacation. It's all in the works, and some are saying maybe it's time to consider a plan B, especially if you're looking at flying anywhere in the country. Well, let's bring in Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets to talk about the impacts on travel plans. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Bruce. I've been watching this really, really closely Mm -hmm. because WestJet's been um, in negotiation since fall of 2022. All of this is centering around um, wages, job security, and scheduling at the airline. Plus, um, it's not just WestJet, it's also its subsidiary swoop. Um, So today, they're doing informational pickets at Vancouver, Toronto, and Calgary, like you mentioned. And I did check the YVR website and looked at WestJet flights, both departing and arriving. Everything seems to be fine. There won't be, doesn't seem to be that there's going to be um, much in the way of disruptions. The, the bigger worry is, is that 
at the moment, they're in uh, a period of what they're calling cooling off. Yeah. It's a three-week period, but that ends on May the 13th. And if there's no deal, uh, the union will be in a position to issue a 72-hour strike notice, which means, I mean, for us as consumers, um, that the strike could happen May the 16th, and that's right before the May long weekend. And it's a really busy time for travel. I hope it doesn't come to that. These pickets are really going to add pressure to the airline to try and solve this. Um, the airline's point, you know, is standing on the fact that they are saying that at this stage of the game, they're, they really want to get, uh, uh, competitive. Uh, within the Canadian airline industry with wages and things and have something that's long-term and sustainable for the future and that it's a very different market than the U.S. But the reality is, Bruce, is that the airlines here in Canada, they're bleeding pilots, particularly to the U.S., um, because many of the airlines in the U.S. have already settled their uh, negotiations with pilots, and the pay is way more in the U.S., and it's not that far. I mean, pilots are... You know, they, it's kind of like teachers. If they're getting more money yep. in a different province, they want to go. And so this is really, really concerning. Well, it is concerning. And there are very few choices uh, in the States. There are a lot more, but there's also a bigger population and about the same landmass. So yeah. <laughs> you can understand some of the differences there. Well, uh, a cooling the- off period is typical during this time. But yes. as you mentioned, we're coming up to that May long weekend. How busy is the May long? Yeah, it's it's really, really busy. And um, the, the concern would be is what just happens then? And I'm really hoping that the negotiations will uh, resolve itself by then. This is typical. But this is a, one of the two major carriers in Canada. This would cause major chaos. Uh, I can't imagine what it would cost the airline. I don't can't imagine what it would cost the customers in frustration trying to get onto other carriers because there's not a lot of space. When you, it's a, a long weekend, things are, are with the airlines are full compared to other other time periods where you might be able to get space. So this would be a horrific domino effect. One of the things that I did want to quickly touch on, I don't know how much time we have, Bruce, but this is not a new problem. Okay. And this is not a Canadian problem. This is a problem that um, back in 2018, I was uh, reminded of this report that came out. It was by the Canadian Council for Aviation and Aerospace, and it said that a third of flight operators in Canada cited pilots as their biggest skill shortage. And that the report also forecasts that by 2025, which really feels like it's just around the corner for us, the industry would need here in Canada 7,300 pilots. Just to put that in perspective, right now we have between 16 and 20,000 pilots in the system here in Canada right now. So that's a massive amount, 7,300 pilot shortage. And we only have 17 to 20,000. I mean, so... The other concern, of course, is that in the States, they are estimating 12,000 pilots needed to fill their labor gap. So it, it's a and it's not a quick fix. I wish it was. But, if it, you know, this is a problem that's because it's been brewing for years with the aging workforce and with um, a slew of layoffs and early retirements during the pandemic. It's really made for this perfect storm and training qualified pilots. It's not like you can train them in a couple of months and get them on on board aircraft. This is a hundred thousand dollar investment or more to become a commercial pilot. It takes years to do. 
Um, so it's kind of this huge barrier of getting more people in the cockpit. I really hope that the governments around the world um, incentivize people who are young and eager to, or people to looking to change careers to look at becoming pilots because, first of all, it's a really great career, um, but it's so necessary right now. The education, as you mentioned, it's not cheap. I mean, years no. ago, it used to be, at least in the lower mainland, I think there was one flight school at Trinity Western, and uh, there was also the Canadian military. Canadian military, if you're lucky, would provide a lot of the training for you, but not so many openings. But that used yeah. to be one route to come out, and the other was a very expensive education. I guess things have not changed much uh, in terms of the cost. Yeah, and that's the thing. I know that the, there are um, government incentives for, for things like um, skilled labor now that they're incentivizing and giving people scholarships and bursaries and things like that. This is something that is desperately needed here in Canada. Um, I think the stat, what did it say? Um, the union uh, the, is, is saying for the airline indus industry for WestJet pilots that right now they're estimating that one WestJet pilot is leaving the airline every 18 hours. Yeah. That is massive. Um, so, you know, it, and they're bleeding pilots, like I say, to the U.S., which is paying so much more because all of the major carriers there have settled. And so I know it's really different um, here in Canada as, as far as a market is concerned, but obviously they're going to have to start to either to to, to put more money for these pilots' wages and things, or, or we're going to continue to see the bleed. Absolutely. Supply and demand is uh, definitely the issue there. But when we talk about the impacts here, as you pointed out, uh, WestJet is one of the two big airlines in the country. If there is this full strike by the May long weekend, and if it continues for a while, what is the impact? And, and when I say that, what are we looking at for prices, even if you're able to book on the other airline? Well, the other airlines are, um, are I'm not sure whether they will um, have a lot of space. You're really going to have to, if you've got a flight that's planned, um, your plan B is just going to have to make sure that you know what other airlines do have availability. Do you have insurance? Um, the airline, if it happens, will WestJet will likely uh, give people the ability to refund for a full payment. But that, of course, if you've got a cheap ticket um, and now you're looking to book on one of the other carriers, we're very lucky at the moment that there are so many carriers, especially if you're doing a domestic flight within Canada. But for outside, like if you're flying to Europe or you're flying um, to the U.S. Or, or a hotspot, it would be really, really expensive. I mean, domestically, we've got a number of carriers that are in the marketplace that weren't pre-pandemic, um, but the, those would be the likes of Porter if you're flying within Canada, uh, Canada Jetlines, Flare, those would be some of your options. Um, but if you are going somewhere that is further afield outside of Canada, you can start to look at some of the other options. It will be first come, first serve for rebooking. Um, but let's hope it doesn't come to that, Bruce. Let's hope. Claire Newell, thanks so much. Thanks. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. You likely heard about this story last week. Some tenants at the Winsome Place Apartments in Surrey being told last week by building management that their suites would go on the market if they didn't agree to a bit of a rent hike. When I say a bit, we're talking 40%. Who can pay that? Well, the city of Surrey is now looking into a new bylaw after these tenants came forward. 
Let's talk with Linda Annis, who is a counselor in Surrey. Linda, thanks so much for joining us on this one. Boy, uh, this seems like quite the dilemma. 40% increase. Basically, you're being kicked out at that point. Well, I feel so badly for the residents that are living in this uh, apartment building, uh, particularly the seniors um, who are living on fixed income. Uh, these kinds of rent increases uh, just aren't on. And, you know, it's a loophole in the system and a loophole that needs to be fixed. Yeah. And how do you go about fixing this loophole? It's not Surrey is not alone in this. We've heard of the same thing happening in Vancouver and other places where there have been dramatic increases in property value. But is there a fix? Well, there sure is. What we do need to do is look to, you know, some innovative ways. And New Westminster, for example, back in 2018, closed the loophole so that there are rent-only zones. And if you are living in a building that's solely owned by one individual, they can't, you know, basically take the rug from underneath of you uh, on individual suites. So I've asked staff to look at what New West is doing and look at other communities as well, because we need to get this loophole closed now and immediately. So this comes into a municipal bylaw. The province does not get involved whatsoever, I would imagine, right? That's correct. And, you know, here in Surrey, we're in such desperate need for uh, rental accommodation, and we can't afford to be losing it. And we need to be working, you know, with the developers to build complete rental um, apartment buildings, but we need to also make sure that the tenants that are living in there are protected, uh, particularly those that are on fixed income. They can hardly afford a a 40% tax increase. And, you know, uh, by provincial law, they're only allowed to technically have a 2% unless the resident agrees that they will take on that extra increase. That's if there isn't that renovation and uh, there are a whole bunch of caveats on that. Uh, of course, Linda DeConzelis, Rod Hill, they were among a few tenants of the Winsom Place Apartments who were told that they would uh, be kicked out if, uh, if they didn't agree to 40%. Some are going to be paying that 40%, I would imagine, and the bylaw still isn't in place. Where do we go from here? Well, we need to get the bylaw put into place, and we need to get a bylaw put into place immediately. This is completely unfair particularly for people on fixed income or for anyone for that matter, to wake up one morning and find out that their rent's gone up 40%. Few people can afford that kind of rent increase. And, you know, we're all, you know, having tough times right now with significant inflation and seniors, of course, being on fixed incomes. Uh, we need to do a better job of protecting our uh, residents that are living in rental accommodation. Now, staff are uh, reviewing, as you mentioned, what happens in New Westminster and their approach. But the B.C. Court of Appeal is taking also a look at the New Westminster rental-only zoning bylaw. So there is some concern and some opposition and some challenge to that. What's the problem here? Well, the problem is that, you know, oftentimes a single uh, individual or company will buy a building, make it all rental, and then start to pull out suites and sell them to other owners. Well, you know, you can't, I mean, it's, it's a loophole, and it's certainly not fair for people that are renting and those that are on fixed income. Uh, we as elected officials need to do a better job of protecting those tenants Conversely, we also need to be working with developers to make sure that we are getting enough rental accommodation built in our city. Uh, Surrey, 
not dissimilar to many other municipalities, is extremely short in rental accommodation. So we need to be working hand-in-hand with developers, but also making sure that uh, the tenants are protected as well. I wonder if some people might be pointing out to a fact that if you don't go ahead with some of these renovations, I hate to use that, they wouldn't use that term, but renovations and upgrades and that sort of thing, and if you don't keep up with it, and if you have zones for rental, what you're essentially doing is creating an area where you have low-income uh, housing in a way that's really not attractive to most people, including those who are on low incomes. Well, certainly those on low incomes are affected by this, but there's also you know young folks that are you know striving to save money to buy their very first place, and they're caught in this loophole. If suddenly they were paying, for an example, fifteen hundred dollars a month, and it goes up to twenty five hundred, certainly that uh, limits their ability to also get into the housing market. So we need to make sure that you know uh, tenants aren't being you know backed into a corner where they have no choice but to either pay that increase or become homeless. And you know seniors that uh, are in fixed income to have a forty percent increase, you know it just is not. You know you, we can't be putting people on the street. That's just not right. Uh, we need to do a better job. In getting this message out, are you talking with those councillors in other municipalities besides New Westminster, besides Surrey? Do you have some sort of agreement on a need to get this done? Well, each individual municipality would provide their own bylaws, but yes, I am certainly consulting with my colleagues. I'm also consulting with the MLAs too, because we need to, as um, you know, Premier Eby has been saying, we need more. Um, housing options for our residents in British Columbia and doing something like this isn't helping in any meaningful way. Okay, when does this bylaw go up to Surrey? Is it tonight? No, we do not have a council meeting tonight. Our next council meeting is um, uh, this coming a a week from tonight and if staff doesn't have a report uh, prepared for that council meeting, I will be making a notice of motion to get one done ASAP.